0: Good morning, how's everyone? Great. Yep. Awesome, good. Glad that you are here. A couple of uh, announcements before we get started. Really just one announcement. Um, in January, we're going to have a new sermon series for five weeks in January called You Asked For It, okay? Um, and so this is easy, uh, either the laziest sermon series ever or the most creative, uh, depending on how you look at it. The idea here is that you're going to choose for five Sundays the topics that I preach on. Okay, and so perhaps you have a question that you've been wrestling with, um, and you'd like that to be a topic for a sermon. Perhaps there is something you've been um, doubting or wrestling with. Perhaps there's a passage, it could just be a scripture um, that you'd want, uh, and so... Uh, from now until January, and even into January, we'll be accepting new kind of nominations, if you will. Um, we're asking for you to provide those so that uh, we'll be able to have some to pick uh, when it comes time for the series. Now, there's two ways for you to nominate a topic slash issue slash passage. You know, it might be something that maybe you haven't ever heard preached at FCQ, Um or you know, my response to that is like, maybe it was preached, but you haven't been here 100% of the Sundays. Uh, or, right, great, rightfully so, maybe it's something I don't preach about a lot, right? And you're like, I, I want you to talk about this, Pastor Man. So this is your chance, right? Put me on the hot seat, uh, and uh, we'll do it that way. There's two ways. Um, the, connect, <coughs> excuse me, the connection cards we have for our guests... Um, I don't think those are out today. They're back there uh, in the hallway. You can just write it down on one of those. It can be anonymous and just put it in the box for the connection cards and we'll get it that way. Or there's an email set up for it, uh, faq at fc3.org. You can send over your uh, topic suggestion that way as well. Okay, Um, there's a couple flyers like this out in the hallway. So, please, uh, some of you maybe I think right now on the top of your head are like, hey, I've got, I've got something. Others, maybe think about it. Uh, the goal here is not to like just try to come up with something super hard um, to, uh, to, to trap me or, or make my life miserable, but um, that's a possibility if you're that kind of person. So, uh, know that that's coming up in January, and that can only be accomplished if I get some participation from you all, okay? And so... Um, what are the questions that you have? What are some of the things that you would like to talk about? We also will probably be experimenting um, with some more interactive formats of worship because of the nature of the series. So um, for some of them, it might be a shorter sermon. Um, shorter for me means hour and a half, two hours. And then we might have like some live Q&A uh, as mm-hmm. part of the service and things of that nature. Um, and so... Uh, we might be experimenting less like lecture style format sermons and more like okay this is a difficult issue right maybe here's my take on it and now what questions what topics what what does anyone else want to say so um, there's lots of different things we might be doing in January Um, but the beginning of all that is for you to start sending in some questions or topics or passages uh, that we can kind of go through uh, on that way Now, let me ask you this as we get started today for our sermon. Who in here has a legitimate bucket list? Anybody? One person? A couple people? Who could probably come up with like two or three things pretty quickly off the top of their head for a bucket list? Yeah, at least half of us, if not more. Um, I haven't written out like a bucket list, right? But there's a couple things in my mind right, that I have that I could provide for a, a bucket list bucket list, if you don't know, is things you want to do before you die, before you kick the bucket. It's a very sophisticated way of talking about death. Um, I think most of us, whether we know it or not, right, at least have some unstated expectations or goals or hopes, right? Something we might get to experience before we die. Um, whether it's going to this place or having this happen to you, um, I would follow up that question with another question. How many of you have ever been in a situation or experienced something or just experienced something where you kind of sat back and breathed deeply and said, I'd be happy if I died right now? Anybody? A few of us. It kind of tells me a little bit about you either way, okay? Um, so if, if you haven't, you know, I kind of feel sad that you've never experienced something so powerful that you'd be like, I'd be happy to go right now. Um, but if you, uh, if you, you obviously um, haven't had that time, maybe you're a happier person than others of us. Um, I can tell you that in my own life, there have been a few times, whether for stupid reasons or... Very like transcendental reasons, where I felt like I'd be happy if I died right now. I could I could leave peacefully right now. Um, obviously, there are stupid occasions, right? Like after a good basketball game or something like that. Uh, it was those were very rare for me. Okay, so it was a big high. Um, but I can think of particularly in my life times of worship, like where I've felt very 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 close to the lord and and felt like i was in his presence in the same way that i'm in your presence right now um so there's a whole a whole stream of theology and theological disciplines um that that works to get us there and so most of us work off what we call cataphatic theology which is statements about god positive statements god is love god is this god is this there's another way to do theology though it's called apophatic (coughs) theology Uh, And it's all about negating. So it's saying God isn't this, and God isn't this, and God isn't this. And the idea behind it is to kind of humble yourselves, right? And to say, really, at the end of the day, there's this infinite qualitative difference between you and God. And no word that you're going to be able to come up with is going to even scratch the surface of something that's true about who God is. Um, and the way this usually plays out is in prayer, in what apophatic theologians call contemplative prayer, um, where prayer is, or turns into, less a time of you talking mentally or out loud and more a time of you existing. So you get rid of these thoughts about God in your mind and acknowledge how short they are when it comes to really describing the true, full, eternal creator God. And the goal of it is to get to this point where you're simply in his presence. And I don't know if you ever felt that. Um, I can think of two times in particular for me that I've felt that. And this is rare for me, so don't get the wrong impression. It's not like every day for me. Um, once uh, I was playing guitar up here, and we were playing, I think it was Glorify, Glorify Your Name. And we were kind of playing in the bridge and for whatever reason, it felt like the ceiling had opened up above me and there was like this light around me and if it was up to me, right, we would have just rode that bridge for the next like eight hours. Mm -hmm. Like no one would have been leaving, right? And the very thought that this was going to end, that this experience was going to end, was a deeply saddening thought to me because for whatever reason, again, in that one moment, with the congregation singing, and with me playing, and and it's kind of a simple bridge, and so I don't have to think about it that much, and, and just the the glory of it all, I just felt God's presence so deeply. And most you know, I'm kind of a nerd, kind of an academic, and so it happens for me sometimes as well when I'm reading books, uh, or books of theology, and I know Michelle knows this exactly. I'll be reading a book, and there'll be some sentence with words no one pronounces or uses. And you get to the end of the sentence, and then all of a sudden, you're no longer reading the book. You set the book down, and the book's now, like, launched you into the presence of God. And I can remember, while I was working on my thesis for my master's degree, reading a very dense article on Cyril's <laughs> hypostatic union, and, I mean, it's really boring, not devotional stuff, right? And putting it down and sitting in my office for about an hour and just feeling like I've never been that close to God before. Like I wasn't saying anything and I wasn't particularly thinking anything, right? It was just being in the presence. I just felt like he was there. Or I was there. Somehow I was in his his presence. And again at the same time there's that thought the moment this ends No matter how good of an experience comes afterwards, it will not be as good. (coughs) It's kind of an inherently sad transition. I've reached a peak, and nothing after this is going to match up to it. The reason I ask you that question is because today we're going to meet a man (coughs) in the Bible who reaches this peak. Very literally, he gets to the point where he has been waiting to die... And eventually, he experiences something, he says, now I can finally die. He, he experiences the peak of his life and says, I can die. And, and we'll meet this man, and I'll also say this, I think this man we'll meet this morning is kind of the embodiment of the Advent season. So, so most of you will know here at First Calling Christian Church, we've been going through Advent, which is the four weeks before Christmas. Um, so Christians aren't actually supposed to celebrate Christmas until Christmas Day. And then we're supposed to have 12 days of Christmas. And before that, we're supposed to focus on um, preparing and waiting and building up anticipation um, for the celebration of Christmas. And so we'll finish out a sermon series we started um, called Christmas Playlist, where we have gone through different um, songs and poems that are found in the book of Luke and the Christmas narrative. Uh, And so we'll look at the last one, the fourth one this morning, uh, and we'll be introduced to a man. And again, I think this man and this song really kind of embody the whole spirit of Advent, of waiting, and then of fully understanding and celebrating um, what it is um, to understand Christmas and be able to celebrate Christmas. So if you wouldn't have a Bible, um, flip it with me to Luke chapter 2. Very little-known character in the scriptures. He only makes one cameo. It's here in Luke, at the beginning of Luke's gospel. It's a very interesting story. At this point in the story, Jesus has already been born. We'll pick it up in verse 22 in chapter 2 of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And right before this, Jesus has been circumcised. Uh, He's been named Jesus. So, Jesus, the name, if you don't know, means God saves, Yahweh saves. Um, Jesus and Joshua are the same name in Hebrew um, Yeshua but uh, in Greek Yeshua, Joshua is transliterated into Iesus and so since English we go up to the Greek we get Jesus you won't care about this but there is actually a group of people who really debate seriously whether we should call Jesus Jesus or Joshua or use like the Hebrew pronunciation or this or that right I'm fine with Jesus I think we're okay um, but Jesus and Joshua, hebrew wives, are the same name. Um, when you go to the book of Hebrews, this is important because Hebrews will constantly play, make word plays on this, right? Because Joshua was supposed to bring the people to the promised land, and Joshua was supposed to bring the people rest. And you're always left wondering, Is he talking which Joshua is he talking about? Because the first Joshua got them to the promised land, but not really the Promised land and first Joshua got them rest, but not really rest, right? I mean, it was just disaster after disaster after disaster. But our Joshua is going to get us to the real promised land, and our Joshua is actually going to get us to the real rest. And so they named Jesus, they circumcise him, and then we pick him up in verse 22 as they continue to act like a law abiding, um, good Jewish family. Now, the time came in verse 22. ...for their purification according to the law of Moses. And they brought him, him being Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb. Very interesting analogy for birth, for the uh, firstborn. They're the ones who first opened the womb. They cracked the door open. Um, They shall be called holy. And offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now a couple things to notice here. In almost a throwaway verse here, verse 23, um, we have a quote here from the Exodus story. Um, every male who first opens the womb, every firstborn male shall be called holy to the Lord. Now this is um, from the time of the Exodus story where the firstborn males were either killed by the angel of death, or saved by the blood of the Passover lamb. Um, And we have here an allusion to the time of the Exodus, which is God's first great saving act um, for the people of Israel. Um, They were in slavery in Egypt and crying out to the Lord, uh, and then finally God delivers them, uh, and says the firstborns will be called holy to me. Um, You'll know, hopefully, that Jews at this time feel like they're in a very similar situation. They're slaves to the Romans, to the Roman Empire. And they're waiting for God to bring them a deliverer, to free them from the Romans. Um, So there's this quote here from uh, the Exodus story. Um, And then we're told that they are going to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice according to the, the law. What's interesting though is the sacrifice they offer is not actually the sacrifice that the law prescribes. So according to the law, the sacrifice for your firstborn son is a lamb, um, an unblemished lamb, OK? Um, those, however, are very expensive and very hard to come by. And so throughout the years, there were stipulations made for poor people who maybe couldn't get a lamb to sacrifice, um, Maybe for good reasons or bad reasons, right? Sometimes it's hard to judge between the two. It could be that the Jewish leaders were, like, having sympathy on poor people and wanted them to also participate in the sacrifice. Um, This could be another way of just getting money from poor people, though, right? Like, if you make a product that only rich people can buy, sometimes you're like, maybe we should make a cheaper product and also get poor people's money, too, right? Um, Either way, we know that there was a... Um, possibility. If you couldn't get the lamb, you could instead buy two turtle doves or two pigeons and sacrifice those for your firstborn son. This is one of many reasons we know that Mary and Joseph are your typical Galilean peasants. Right, They're living day by day. They have no money. Um, when they go to the temple, they, they don't sacrifice the lamb. Um, they have to go the, the poor option. Right, Their, their welfare status uh, when it comes to the temple in Jerusalem. Um, but they are, again, law-abiding, faithful Jews at the temple to make a sacrifice for their firstborn son um, and kind of dedicate him to the Lord. Now we meet a new character in verse 25.
1: Now there is a man in Jerusalem
0: whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, <coughs> waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, Simeon, the name, means God hears. Um, I would like to suggest this is also an allusion to the Exodus story. If you remember, right before the Exodus, right before God calls Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, there's a very haunting phrase, at least it's always haunting to me, where the Israelites are calling out and crying out to the Lord. And it's almost a sense of like, has he forgotten about us? Like, has he forgotten about our father Abraham and all those promises? and then you have this one line right before everything is triggered and it's God heard their cries he heard and then it's that hearing that triggers this act of salvation um, Simeon here kind of embodies God's hearing he reminds us that when we cry and when we scream and when we um, Um, cry out that we have a God who who hears us and again at this time in history the Jewish people were crying out to the Lord for redemption, for freedom and God is hearing them and responding to them now a few things we're told about Simeon are all very good you would love to have these descriptions uh, after your name if you're in the Bible Um, Simeon we're told was righteous and devout um He's in Jerusalem. Those two adjectives means he's just about as good as it comes, right? There's not much bad you can say about Simeon. Um, he is waiting for the constellation of Israel. Again, this is uh, for Israel to be delivered, right? They're in this state of oppression. They're in this state of longing for God to do something for them. And Notice that word waiting. Here we get a sense of advent, right? <coughs> He is waiting for God to do something miraculous, for God to show up somehow and and save them and deliver them. And not only is he waiting for the consolation of Israel, but the Holy Spirit is upon him. This is before the Holy Spirit's poured out on all believers. And so um, the Holy Spirit usually is generally only upon prophets and certain men and women uh, who are called to fulfill a unique role in um, before Pentecost, uh, after Jesus' resurrection. Um, the Holy Spirit, though, does play a huge role in all of Luke's gospel, and so here, as well as many other places, Luke is um, once again employing the Holy Spirit uh, and, and trying to get your attention on his work, his movement, how important he is to what God's doing in the world. Um, so Simeon is all-star Christian. He's got all the deacon badges and awards. Okay, uh, He is top 10 podcast, okay, his blog is blowing up, Simeon is an all-star uh, man in Jerusalem. Now, another thing we learn about Simeon in the next verse, verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Christ is the word for Messiah, or the King, the one who would come and deliver Israel. Um, And so Simeon apparently had gotten this deal from the Holy Spirit. We don't get the details about it, whether it was a vision or some conversation, um, but we're told that Simeon knew you were going to hang on to life until you saw, you got to physically see the one who would end up being the consolation for Israel, who would be this king who would come. Now at the time, most Israelites were waiting for a king who would act much like Um, God acted in the Exodus, Um, primarily kill the enemies, right? So the Romans were the enemies, kill them, free the Israelites. We know that that's not how Jesus operated. Um, Jesus came to defeat much deeper, more sinister powers like sin and death and Satan and evil itself. And he offered salvation even to the Romans, right? To the Gentiles. We'll see Simeon's on board with this. Um, In fact, while the popular view in, in Second Temple Judaism Um, during Jesus' day was for this militaristic Messiah, there was a quiet kind of remnant who thought and had prayerfully looked through the scriptures and understood that no God's deliverance would be for everybody. Um, And God was coming to defeat deeper powers. At the end of the book of Micah, for instance, Micah says um, in chapter 7, God's going to come and throw our sins into the depths of the sea. He's actually quoting from The Exodus, Exodus 15, the song Victory, where God has thrown Pharaoh and his army into the sea. And Micah realizes, right? The bigger picture, what we really need is not for God to come defeat some people. He needs to defeat sin itself, which enslaves not only other people who oppress us, but even us. Um, And so from Micah on, there's there's been this prophetic tradition in people, and God's people, who had made this observation, even though it wasn't popular um, among the masses. Now, tradition has it, Simeon was 113 years old. Okay? We're not told that in this text. That's just a number um, that's come about traditionally. Um, but we should, and I think have good reason, to imagine Simeon being old as dirt. Okay? Um, yeah. The implication here is the only reason it makes sense that he's still alive is because he has this promise from God. Right? So you've got this old, old old man who's about to kick the bucket Um, and he has one thing on his bucket list and luckily it's a God-promised thing, which is he's going to see the Lord's Messiah. Now, Simeon, verse 27, came in the spirit into the temple. Perhaps this was just a normal day for Simeon. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and blessed God. Um, We don't know exactly how this happened. This could be a very awkward situation. Uh, Those of you with children, perhaps, have experienced the same kind of thing that happens a little bit less, I think, with pregnancy. So pregnant people, people want to touch your belly, and all of a sudden that's acceptable now. Um, If you just go to a regular woman, you're like, let me feel your stomach. That's not, you get put in jail. Um, with pregnant women though somehow people feel more comfortable doing that Um, with babies, right the moment you have a baby, everyone's like oh, let me hold your baby Um, we don't know whether Simeon just kind of grabbed the baby from them, Uh, we don't know if there was a conversation involved, uh, maybe making it less awkward, perhaps Simeon was actually a part of this process of the sacrifice, and so maybe this was actually a part of the routine the ritual that's going on here in the temple Um, But Simeon holds the child Jesus and blesses God. And then he sings his Advent hymn. He sings his song that we'll look at today. And it goes like this, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. There's his, I can die now, finally. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. We'll come back to the song. And his father and his mother marveled at what had been said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother. Now what he's going to say to Mary doesn't seem like a blessing. So most folks interpret this as being two separate things, right? <laughs> he first blesses them and then says this to Mary. To Mary, he says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Um, so Simeon has some kind of ambiguous words about this child as well. He says to Mary, um, he's going to cause you some pain. The sword's going to pierce your heart. Perhaps when you watch your son be crucified. And as well, this child is going to be one who causes many to fall and many to rise and who causes the thoughts of Israel to be exposed in front of all. This is actually the first time in Luke we get a sense that Jesus' ministry and message and mission is not going to be universally accepted. It's going to be marked by conflict, um, which it is if you read through the gospel stories up until Jesus dies, right? You don't kill a person for being really nice and friendly, um, sometimes we imagine Jesus just as a 60s hippie, love everybody, leave everyone alone, libertarian kind of guy. Um, that kind of person might be annoying, but you don't kill them. right? You just don't invite them over. Um, at some level, we've got to reckon with the fact that the authorities killed Jesus. You kill people because they're threatening to you. They, they have the ability and Um, purpose to subvert your power and your way of life and your leadership um and jesus again his whole life is going to be marked by this conflict but for now let's go back to this advent hymn all right this christmas playlist our last track track number four um from the gospel of luke Um, he has this um kind of epiphany right he breathes deeply and says now i can die i've seen the child and the reason he says is, my eyes have seen your salvation. It's interesting. How did exactly Simeon discern that this was the Messiah? Out of all the different children who would have come to the temple to make a sacrifice, right? Um, did Jesus have a like a cute little shirt on? Like I'm the Messiah, virgin conceived. You know, I don't know. Um, they knit a special cap for him. Obviously, the Holy Spirit somehow had, had revealed this to Simeon about, about the child. Notice as well what Simeon says um, salvation is prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to people Israel. So, Simeon gets the fact, right, that, that this salvation is not simply going to be an affirmation of the Jewish people and a destruction of all the uh, Gentile people, non Jewish, pagan people. Um, that in fact, the salvation will be for the Gentiles. And in fact, both Jews and Gentiles will have some who oppose Jesus and some who accept and follow him. Um, But I want to focus in on this middle of the song here, this phrase that Simeon says here. He says, My eyes have seen your salvation. And I want you to notice that all his eyes have really seen at this point is a baby child. Um, Simeon has not seen Jesus perform a miracle. He's not seen Jesus teach the Sermon on the Mount. He's not seen Jesus feed 5,000 people, lead crowds, triumphantly enter into the city of Jerusalem. He's not seen Jesus die on a cross. He's not seen Jesus resurrect from the dead. He's not seen Jesus ascend into heaven again, most likely he doesn't see any of those things. The idea I think we rightly would get is he probably dies very quickly after this. This is probably one of his last experiences as a human being. But he says, just by seeing that child, he's seen God's salvation. And I want to press the wording here in the song, okay? Simeon doesn't say, I've seen the beginning of your salvation. Or I've seen the start of your salvation. Or I've seen the first step of your salvation. He says, no, actually in this child existing, this baby in my arms, I'm seeing God's rescue. I'm seeing God's salvation. I'm seeing him come and deliver humanity. Now, I want to do what's called a theological reading of a text, a theological interpretation. If I was strictly a historian, and I wasn't a Christian, I would say, "Well, Simeon says that, he uses these words, he probably just means that he's seen what he thinks is the Christ who will eventually bring salvation, right? As a Christian, though, when I read this text, I already have certain beliefs, and those beliefs influence how I read the text, um, I believe, as a Christian, as all Christians believe, that Jesus, the baby Jesus, is actually God himself. God in the flesh. You see, Christians believe in this doctrine called the incarnation, which is that God took on human flesh. He became a human being. And so when I see Simeon's words, and his very precise words here, he says, My eyes have seen your salvation. I want to take that very seriously. The child himself, his existence, his presence, is, in a sense, salvation. In the truth that God has become a human being. The incarnation. Now, as Christians, we so often focus on Jesus' actions for us when we talk about salvation. We talk about how Jesus saved us. We talk about his death on the cross. And we talk about his resurrection. We talk about his ascension. And rightfully so, Jesus' actions are very important to our salvation. Um, But we rarely talk about his person who he is, what kind of a person he is, what exactly constitutes his personhood. Um, For the earliest Christians, for the first 500 years or so, um, they really didn't talk too much about Jesus' actions. so I teach theology at, at HBU, and, and just by nature of teaching theology, one of the things I have to do is, is try to convince 20-year-olds that 500 years of bickering about who Jesus is is important, <laughs> right? More than important or as important as Jesus' actions because we're, we're used to. We're like, but that doesn't matter, right? What matters is he died for us, right? But for the earliest Christians, they spent years and years and years bickering and fighting and sometimes yelling and being ugly and and working out exactly precise definitions of, of what it meant that Jesus, from his birth, was fully God and fully man. Because for them, they believed that the person of Jesus is what makes his actions valuable. So Jesus' death only really does anything if he's fully God and fully human. And his resurrection only really accomplishes anything if he's fully God and he's fully human. You see, for them, if he's not fully God, he doesn't have the power to bring salvation, right? He, he has no authority to do these things, has no ability to do these things. And if he's not fully human, um, if he's only half human or partially human— then he can only bring salvation to the part that he is, right? He can bring half salvation. He can bring partial salvation. He has to touch all of our humanity. Um, the Christian doctrine of the incarnation is this: it's, it's that um, you've got this triune God. Christians believe God is three persons: um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that at one point in history, one of these persons, the Son of God, Um, All three persons have a divine nature, which means they have characteristics that are constitutive of being God. They exist forever, right? They, They were not created. They're omnipotent. They're omniscient. Those kind of things. But at one point in history, particularly 5 BC, one of these three persons, the Son, not the Father, not the Holy Spirit, but the Son, added on a human nature. So he didn't get rid of the divine nature. But he added on, he he made a union of a human nature and a divine nature. And we call this the incarnation. John says the word became flesh. And a human nature is all that it is to be a human, right? Things that are constitutive of being a person, being a human. For instance, having a body and being born, right? You have most likely, hopefully, never met a human who did not have a body. (laughs) you have uh, we can look up some psychiatrists and some people we can call <coughs> for you and get you some help um, it's a safe place um, you've probably never met a human who was ever born um, these are things that right, define humanity and in and, and Jesus there's this hypostatic union, it's basically a word Christians have made up to, to say that they're perfectly united in a way that doesn't take away from one or the other. It doesn't confuse one or the other. It doesn't separate them out. God became a human being. And, and what I'd suggest to you is this. We have been trained, at least in our culture of evangelical Christianity, to look for God's love and his salvation in Jesus' actions. Primarily during his life. So for instance, if, if I think most of you naturally wanted to think, maybe we're feeling like God didn't love you very much and wanted to, to go to a place where you understood that God loved you, you might look at the cross, right? Watch the passion of the Christ. And see how much pain Jesus went through when he died for you. Jesus is a human being. That's, it's pretty powerful, right? That another human would suffer that much for you. If you can add in the fact that he was God, even more so, right? Um, And wow, really, God loves you. And most preachers, that's where they would go if they wanted to communicate how much God loves you. Jesus died for you. He went through all of that for you. Here's, though, what I want to suggest and push this morning on you in preparation of the Christmas season. There are actually two sacrificial jumps down that Jesus makes, that the Son of God makes. You find them both in the classic hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not consider um, the status of God something to be grasped at or kept. Instead, humbled himself by becoming a human being. So there's your first step down. Can we all agree that that's not a promotion? To go from being God to being a human being. You're not moving up the ladder, you're going down the ladder. Um, and then the hymn continues not only just a human being, but also the form of a slave, even unto death. So the second jump is the Son of God becomes a human, then also becomes a human who dies for us. Now, I'd want to ask you this this morning. Which of those two jumps is a bigger one? Requires more humility, more commitment, more love. To go from being a human to a human who dies for somebody else? Or to go from being the son of God? Where all you know for eternity is the perfect love of the Father spirit and to enter yourself into history as a creature as a human being to become cells in a fetus to get pushed out of a womb I would actually argue that that is an infinitely qualitatively distinctively bigger gap to cross and the more I've grown as a Christian the more I've I've grown in kind of my theological development the more I've become aware that this truth that Christians believe of the incarnation actually can hold all the weight we need it to hold when it comes to understanding God's love for us and God's commitment for us not to take away from the cross or the resurrection not to take away from any of that at all Simply to say, I think just by looking at the child, not even having to think about what the child will do eventually, just the child himself, his existence, perhaps holds enough truth and beauty for us to dwell and meditate on for the rest of our lives. How committed was and is God rescuing you committed enough to become a human being and not he didn't just turn into caesar as an adult again he became cells in a uterus to peasants can even pay for the full law to be offered at the temple then again he continued to go down even after that, all the way to the cross. I'm convinced that the incarnation is one of these mysteries and truths of God's love and commitment for us that, that we can't that we can't reach the end of. That the incarnation is perhaps one of the greatest acts in history. That communicates God's commitment to us. God's love for us. His salvation. When you read some of the early church fathers, sometimes they act like God saved humanity just by becoming a human being. And again, as Westerners post-Reformation, we think like, no, the cross had happened, resurrection, all those things, right? And they would agree with you. They were just, do you get it? They were just so caught up in this first step that it was enough for them. The rest was implied. It was like icing on the cake. The incarnation, this child, this was salvation. The divine became human so that all that was wrong with humanity might be fixed that we might be able to be with and experience the divine. Be adopted, sons and daughters, along with Christ. To experience that same love of the Father that the Son had experienced from all of eternity. I, uh, as some of you know I, I, I blog a little bit. I've got a blogger friend who's a lot better at it and uh, a lot more popular. And, a few years ago, he came up with a taxonomy of four Christmas sermons you'll hear every Christmas. No matter what church you're at, no matter where you are, there's only four that you're going to hear. And it's, it's awesome and brilliant and gets referenced every year around Christmas. So I'll, I'll read them off for you. Um, there's four titles and four sermons. I'd argue in Sherland, you'll hear one of these at almost every church. Maybe the, another one occasionally. The first one is this, the four Christmas sermons. The first one is the abrupt. That's the taxonomy, the abrupt. They're all A words. And he describes it like this. God and skin. Weird, huh? Anyway, (laughs) then you move on to another theme, right? Peace or joy or materialism, something like that, right? And it's, it's just an abrupt, like, this is yeah kind of weird so uh, let's talk about a normal theme right Um, then you have what he calls the apologetic so the abrupt then the apologetic he describes the apologetic this way jesus shows up in time and space which means that we can verify the truth through historical methods and really the new testament documents are very reliable don't you know it's this way of kind of like more proving truth right this is a historical event. We can study history. Um, we can study the texts, and they're very uh, reliable. None of which is false, right? Um, I think the apologetic, in our context, seen more toward resurrection, Easter. Um, a lot of Easter sermons fall into apologetic. And so, sometimes I'll have left an Easter sermon or hear one online from, from another church and be like, well, you... I mean, he sure did convince me that it happened, but uh, you never got around to uh, like, talking about why or what, or, you know, like, what did it mean that it happened? What are the implications that it happened? Um, the apologetics. Now, here's one I think is very common. Most of, of, of the Sugar Land Church will be at. Um, he calls it the Anselmian, um, based on theologian Anselm. And he describes it this way. God basically wants to acquit his elect, and so he needs a scapegoat to take the fall. And there he is in a manger. Weird, huh? Anyway, <laughs> and then dot, dot, dot. This is the classic from cross or cradle to cross move that I think most churches make, right? Um, when we place so much emphasis on the cross that even at Christmas time we're preaching cross sermons and not manger sermons, right? Um, the major is just a necessary step to get to eventually the cross and so I've left Christmas sermons being like, was this Good Friday or Christmas? I don't know we should should talk about the cross a lot but there's not a whole lot about Christmas here Um, and then finally the Athanasian from the ancient theologian Athanasius he describes it this way, partly quoting Athanasius and other church fathers in this marvelous exchange he being God, the son of God becomes what we are that we might become what he is. This line is repeated over and over and over by almost all the church fathers. Now this, the Athanasian can make you kind of think like are we becoming gods or what's happening here? Right? Maybe a more uh, how some of the other church fathers said it that would maybe make us more comfortable would be the son of God became a human so that humans might become sons and daughters of God the divine united with the human and just like when Jesus touches the bleeding woman remember this all of his divine purity and power overwhelms cleanses and purifies her So these these church fathers, they thought that's what's happening with the incarnation. The divine fully touches, merges with the human, and all that had gone wrong with the human is now fixed and overtaken by the divine. So that humans can now participate in the divine. Such as living forever, eternal life, that's a characteristic of divinity. Being a son or daughter of God. being co-heirs of Christ, knowing that love, participating the life of the Trinity. It all happens in this exchange where God unites himself to humanity. So Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation. And I think truly, just seeing the child, just seeing the birth, is indeed seeing salvation. Is seeing one of God's mightiest acts of the Son becoming a human being. Now I'll conclude the sermon in our series in our time of Advent together this morning with two things. The first is this. I think I can give you a litmus test for whether you've done Advent correctly. For whether you've really been Adventing or not. Um, If you've been waiting properly anticipating properly when it comes time to celebrate Jesus' birth hopefully here Christmas Eve, December 24th you'll feel a sense of relief almost like weights coming off of your shoulders you'll feel this sense that Simeon felt right? Oh, finally this is what I've been hoping for and waiting for <coughs> To the extent that you've waited for anything is the extent that you'll feel a sense of relief and peace come over you when it arrives, right? So if Christmas comes and it's just another day, another thing to think about for you, then I was just maybe next year, we'll have another crack at it. Maybe next year, let's try to dig into Advent more and really develop a sense of waiting, anticipation, but if, if on Christmas Eve, Christmas morning, you like send me and you can go, oh, this is everything. Then I think that's, in a sense, a, a confirmation of your, your, your adventing. I think that, that tells you you've been doing it right. That waiting, that anticipation now finally gets released when you see and celebrate the child and then lastly I would just suggest I won't be here with you on Christmas Eve for the first time in 8 or 9 years actually mm-hmm. um, but I would suggest and hope and pray that, that you would like Simeon recognize this baby the baby itself as God's salvation that you would appreciate the depths of the incarnation. Um, got like forty people in the room. I know most of you fairly well. Where you are in your lives, even then some of you, right? Something maybe have happened this week. Maybe something going on internally that you've not told anybody. So I, I know that right now there are people in the room who are like at peak of their spiritual walk, their life, right? they feel the love of God and they feel like they're equipped to obey him and follow him and things are good and at the same time in the opposite end, there are people who are maybe at like the lowest part of their spiritual life and they don't know how to sense this, this peace, this love and all they know is just falling over and over and over again and feel stuck don't know a way out then I guess for most of us it's somewhere in the middle and maybe depends on what day and and what I'd hope for you and and suggest for you is that on Christmas and, and just thinking about Christmas thinking about the incarnation that maybe there you could find continually the truth of the depth of God's commitment for you and his love for you a commitment and a love that hasn't stopped. It wasn't a one-time historical thing in the first century. And he didn't give up on you the first time you sinned after you were baptized. The truth of the Incarnation is that God is for us. And God is with us. And as literal of the senses of the words as you can get. And right now, and tomorrow, and in five days and in two months, God in Christ through the Spirit is with you. No matter the peak or the valley, no matter the joy or the despair, no matter the confidence or the doubt. And he's for you. His plan for you is a plan of life. Abundant life he came to bring. And the more I think we can dwell on this fact, the more I think it it might produce in us a commitment to be with and for God as well. We might be able to more faithfully follow after him and find ways to perhaps get out of some of the sins that trap us and some of the the potholes that we're constantly falling into. So thus we end our Advent season. And hopefully we're prepared now to celebrate the birth of of this child. And as we celebrate the birth of the child, I want you to know at a gut level, at an existence level, at a super-propositional, above-words level, that God, in Christ, has proven himself to be with you and to be for you. And that's something that's good news for all people at all times. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you.